If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hi guys, welcome to the show. I have a great guest with me today. I'm talking to Robert Bobby Clink. Robert is the founder of Clink LLC. He's an intellectual property lawyer who focuses on helping entrepreneurs, startups, and innovators harness the power of intellectual property. So if you have a business that relies on something like a trademark, trade secret, a patent, or a copyright, Robert is the guy you want to talk to because he's going to teach you how to protect and defend those assets. Living in a post-knowledge economy like we do now, those four intangible assets are the bedrock of wealth building and wealth creation. So I'm pleased to have Robert on the show to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, and the things that he's, he does. So Robert, welcome to the show. Could you tell us a little Thank bit you. about yourself and um, where you're coming from? Yeah, thank you. I'm 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 happy to be here. Um, I'm I'm an, a, an attorney in Washington D.C., um, but I um, kind of as we talked about, I'm not part of the political part of Washington D.C. I live in the actual the town part, just where you know people live and work and um, uh, just go about their daily lives, uh, just like anywhere else in the United States. Um, I'm originally from deep South Texas, where I was born, close to the Mexican border. Um, I came or kind of left Texas when I was 21 and have been uh, on the East Coast predominantly since then. Uh, I am married. I have a three and a half year old daughter. I have two wonderful dogs that keep me busy. And uh, in my spare time on beautiful days like today, I like to get outside and brew some beer in my backyard. So that's, that's a little bit about my business and about myself. So now let's start from the beginning, Robert, because you grew up in Texas and you have a JD. How, tell us your progression from going to school in Texas to getting your JD from Harvard Law School. Okay, yeah, so I, I grew up, like I said, in, in a, a, a town called McAllen, which is five miles from the Mexican border, and it's about 50 miles from the coast. So it's down really at the southern tip of Texas, um, and I, I call it a town, but I think it was always a city. It was probably about 60,000 people when I was born and um, about 80,000 or so when I left, and then I, I – I, Got my undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin, where both my parents had gone to school, which is, you know, a, a nice school, and it's uh, felt kind of like home. And my parents actually had a house in Austin at that point, and so, you know, I had family connections there, et cetera. But I did that, and, and I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer starting in, in high school at some point. I had actually gotten into various public speaking events and, and debate class and things like that that had kind of directed me towards thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I had decided that for sure by the time I went to college. Um, I, I graduated college at uh, 21 years old, literally, I think, uh, three weeks after my 21st birthday. And uh, the next fall, so the next August, I moved up to Boston, Massachusetts, or Cambridge, right? I was out of Boston mm -hmm. uh, to go to Harvard Law School. And that was – to say it was a culture shock is uh, – a bit of an understatement. Oh. I went from, um, you know, never really having lived outside. Of, well, not I'm never living outside of Texas. I had vacationed out of Texas, but not um, ever really spent any significant time outside of it mm -hmm. to just a completely different place. 
and the people that I was with were from all over and it was just an amazing experience. It was the first time uh, that I would spend any amount of time with people. You know, there were people that I was in law school with who were from uh, various parts of Europe. There were people from Africa. There were people from Asia. And I was experiencing all of this really for the first time. Mm. And that was an amazing experience in and of itself. Mm -hmm. What do you you remember about that time that was particularly interesting and memorable to you? (laughs) Well, there was a couple, there's a couple things that stick out at at me. Um, One of them was that uh, up to that point in my life, I had, when I was around people, I normally had lived the most interesting life because although I'd lived in Texas my whole life, you know, I had had some wonderful experiences. My parents had um, taken me, on, you know, on trips, and they had made friends with um, a, a, a couple and become very good friends with this couple from Sweden who had lived in various places in Europe. And my brother and I had actually gone and stayed with him for a couple of weeks, a couple of different times. Once in London, and once in um, I don't know, remember where in France, but somewhere out in the country of France, in mm-hmm. in the countryside. And so I had always been the interesting guy. And then I went to Harvard Law School, and I was one of the least interesting people there. Uh, most of my <laughs> classmates, you know, most of my classmates, you know, had a PhD or had gone and, and done these incredible fellowships and studied and just done some amazing things in their lives that made me seem very boring and uninteresting. And so it was that is the thing that sticks out in my mind the most. Uh, about the experience. There was also, um, uh, there was people who, you know, were wonderful people. And I remember things about the environment. I remember about it, how cold it was at various times, which was a shock to the system. Um, and I remember little things like that, but that's the big thing that sticks out at me. And then just the, the experience of having, um, being at school with some truly amazing people. One of my classmates, is now in the United States Senate. It's Tom Cotton from from Arkansas. Uh, I knew um, uh, the Castro brothers of Julian and 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 I'm forgetting his brother's name. They were a couple years ahead of me, but I knew them. So there are all of these amazing people now that I look around and you know I guess they were always amazing, but now they're coming to prominence. Um, and it's it, it <laughs> I got to be on par with those people and just spend three years of my life with them, which was an amazing experience. Yeah. And it just goes to show you that no matter how awesome you think you are or whatever you think you're doing is, there's always somebody out there that's kind of like doing it at a 10x level. So you always have yep. to keep staying on edge. You know, you have to maintain your your edge so that you don't just um, fall into complacency. So, so what happens next? Well, so I had... Um, before I went to work for a law firm, I got the experience of working for a judge for a year. Um, he was uh, a court of appeals judge, a federal court of appeals judge in Arkansas named uh, Richard Arnold, who was and is to this day the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life. Um, and at the same time, the nicest man I've ever met, just unbelievable person, wonderful to work for. Uh, and that is a, a process that is back when I was in law school, it was this strange process that you would apply for these jobs in the middle of your second year out of, you're going to have three years in law school. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, some of these judges actually hired 
at the very beginning of his second year. So think about that. Only a third of the way into your career as a student, <laughs> you're applying for these jobs. Yeah. Um, Judge Arnold was a bit later. He hired later in that uh, second year. And I, I quite honestly didn't know anything about him, but my property law professor um, was someone who uh, held interviews for him up at uh, law school. This was um, Judge Arnold had um, gone to law school with some of the most amazing legal minds, including a now deceased, but Justice Scalia of the Supreme Court, et cetera. And Judge Arnold graduated first in his class. <laughs> and so I just fell into this wonderful experience in Little Rock, Arkansas. And while I was there, made some amazing friends. One of my best friends was another lawyer that worked with me that year. But so I, I did that for a year and then came up here to Washington and started working at that point at a very big corporate law firm that um, had, I don't know how many lawyers had at the time, but it's probably about 2,000 lawyers now um, across the world. So it was really like working for a big corporation uh, more than being a professional at that point. Okay. So now before we talk about the big law firm experience, you working with this renowned judge of the Court of Appeals, what were some of the key lessons you learned from him and how were you able to transition those lessons going into a big law firm? Well, so he taught me actually one of the things that is in many ways one of the lessons that I still apply um, in my life and especially now as an entrepreneur, I, I apply it. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't phrase it this way, but he taught me the concept of that you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And it, it came up in a context where when you work for these judges, part of what you do, uh, there were three lawyers like myself who were right out of law school, so myself and two others. And part of our role was to um, write first drafts of the, the decisions and the opinions that he would issue. And at one point, about the middle of our year working for him, he came in because he felt like we just weren't producing them quickly enough. And he said something to us along the lines of, you have to understand this is a product we're putting out and you can't wait until it's perfect. And mm. so you know, his point was that there is value in simply getting it getting the job done. done. And he wasn't saying doing a bad job, but he was saying don't sit there and you know, try it. to make it perfect. Yeah, tweak it forever. Yeah. And you know that uh, I apply that today in my life because – and I have to keep reminding myself of that quite honestly because uh, I relaunched my website, I don't know, four or five months ago. I had been sitting on – um, uh, 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 that version, that updated version for, I think almost a year, but at least oh. six or seven months, but I had been waiting to perfect a couple of things, even though what I had was already 10 times better than the existing site. And so finally I said, what am I doing? Yeah. Get this out there. I can always iterate. I can always improve. Let's get this out there. So I, I try to remember that lesson, um, every day of my life. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And you also clerked with um, now Supreme Court George Neil Gorsuch, am I right? Yeah, so I got to, with him. I got to work um, actually when he was. It was at the second law firm I worked at. Okay. Uh, so so I worked at that first big law firm, and I was uh, I wanted to make a change, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But uh, one of the lawyers I'd worked with. Um, for the judge was working at this other firm at the time it was Kellogg Huber and then went on from there with many other names. 
Um, and she said, well, why don't you come over and interview here? And so I did. And I met with a lot of lawyers in my interview process. But quite honestly, the only one I remember from my interview process was now Justice Neil Gorsuch. Mm. Uh, and he was the one who I immediately clicked with. And he was the one who – and he didn't really put a hard sell on me. But the chance to work with him was what made me say, yeah, I want to go work at that law firm. Okay. And, and, and so I did. And then I, he was kind of my mentor and I was his protege for about six months before he left the firm to go work in government. Um, and it was, I learned some amazing lessons from him, including he, he was, he was a wonderful advocate for his clients and represented them and was vigorous and zealous. But at the same time, he was a nice guy. <laughs> Some lawyers, and, and gee, this is one thing that I don't understand, but so many lawyers believe, I guess, or they don't know how to be nice while also representing their clients in the right way. And they just think they have to be rude and mean. And um, he didn't do that. And he taught me that as a, a very valuable lesson that, that you don't have to um, – be mean. You can quite honestly just be a good person and and handle things right. So, um, you know, that's that was the lesson I learned from him. Hollywood doesn't want us to believe that lawyers are nice people. From my my opinion, do you think that's true? Well, so so I th and I think again, I think a lot of lawyers and again, well, so what I would say is it depends on where you are. Okay. Um, I, I think if you're in a small town. I think most lawyers are nice and, and perfectly wonderful people and get along. And, and um, it, it partly has to do with the fact that they're going to see the same. I mean, you know, if, if you're in a legal community of 50 lawyers, you're going to know everybody. <laughs> and if, yeah. if you get a reputation for being you know, just for being mean or a shark, well, everybody's going to know that and that's mm. going to come with you. So so people will tend to be nicer. Um, at another time in my life, I was a federal prosecutor in Fort Worth, Texas. I knew all of the, the defense attorneys who regularly represented defendants in federal court. We all got along. Everyone was nice. We were cordial with each other. But I mean, we represented the interests of the party we represented. But mm -hmm. because we saw each other over and over and over again, it builds that up. Mm. In much of my practice, however, as a civil lawyer, you know, I will see a lawyer once in my career. And I think people know that. And so they just think that they can do whatever they want. They can be rude. They can uh, you know, show a lack of respect and, and, and there's no consequences for it. And you know, I think it's a I think it's a sad statement about my profession, but there are good lawyers out there. We're not all bad guys. What did you like or not like about working in a big law firm? Because you've transitioned from, you know, public service two big law firms, and then you now got to becoming an assistant U.S. attorney, which we're going to talk to because I believe you have a lot of cool stories in there. But what did you like and not like about working in a big law firm before you well, now transitioned into public service as a AUSA? Well, so at the time, what I thought I did, I mean, at the time I was doing it, I kind of chafed against it and, and I thought what it was was that I wanted more responsibility and, and, and to be doing certain tasks. Um, looking back, I think what I was really um, chafing against was that I didn't have 
there was no entrepreneurial aspect of it. I wasn't in control of my life. I wasn't in control of my practice. I wasn't, um, in, in charge of my own destiny. And that I think was my biggest problem. Now, now the good side, heck I had, you know, I had all the support in the world. I had, you know, legal assistance. I had a, a, a paralegals. I had, uh, I think it, yeah, those firms I had, uh, dedicated, uh, like copy rooms that would make any copies and any faxes, you know, back in the day of faxes, obviously, and do all of those things for me, mm-hmm. which I haven't had now in you know, <laughs> almost a decade <laughs> now. You know, I mean, you know, my, my wife comes in and helps me with administrative tasks from time to time, and I have an associate attorney who works with me, but, you know, I don't have the same level of support. Mm-hmm. And also, hey, back, you know, back then in those heydays working for those um, big firms, I mean, I, I had a guaranteed paycheck, uh, with very little risk. Um, and, and that was nice, but you know, there's always going to be, um, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. So, but do you think that's a statement to the transition in the world right now that everybody's trying to go, Entrepreneurial, every every professional or professional service provider is trying to figure out a way to be able to not just um, stand on their own and skip on that um, steady paycheck, but be able to create something and make that dent in the universe that has been missing in their lives. Well, you know, I think I think there's a lot of that, and I think part of it is quite honestly that the shakeup in the recession of, of the late 2000s, the 2008 uh, timeframe, I think really had some, some long lasting impacts on professional services. So, you know, there were, there are some industries I think they went down and that are now probably back to where they were before. And I can't speak to other industries. I mean, I don't know how the accounting industry or a lot of these other uh, professional service industries are, but Mm -hmm. in the, in the, the, law area, the legal industry, I know in the United States, that recession led a lot of law firms for the first, or sorry, um, clients, not law firms, but companies for the first time to start asking some questions like, Hmm. why am I paying, you know, $350 an hour for a brand new lawyer to review documents in my case, which at these big law firms, that's what was happening. They were having, you know, lawyers fresh out of law school, reviewing documents and charging $350 an hour for that process. And, and it, when I say reviewing documents, let me be clear, this is mind-numbing work that uh, is essentially just, yes, this is relevant and it's relevant to this issue. And it's just clicking buttons. Okay. So it's not, kind of like it's da- not anything. Data entry or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's a little more than, yeah, it's, it's not quite data entry, but it's okay. basically, yes, it's figuring out, is it relevant? Yes or no. And if it's relevant, what is it relevant of, of these 17 topics? Right. Okay. So it's, but that's it. <laughs> I mean, okay. That's what you're doing. And they were billing and clients were paying $350 an hour and maybe more, maybe less than that, but around there for that service. Huh. And so as part of this recession, these law firms started saying, why are we doing this? And, and why am I paying you, you know, some of these more senior lawyers were, were billing, you know, you would have a, a, a team of like seven to 10 lawyers on a case. And some people started saying, well, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so the, the law firm, the law firms had to react when the clients started to push back and say, we're not going to handle this anymore. And in some sense, um, as, um, is it, uh, 
Um, you know, I think it's Warren Buffett who says, you know, that, uh, the, the, the person who's skinny dipping will be exposed when the tide goes out. Well, yeah. that's kind of what happened here. And at law firms, all of a sudden you had these big law firms, you had a lot of lawyers who really were what, what we call as lawyers call service partners. They, they did work, but they didn't have any of their own clients. Mm. They didn't have any relationships with clients. They had just gone under this, Hey, it's safe. I go and I do my work. And as long as I do my work, I'm going to continue to make money. And it kind of exposed that. And, and those types of partners started to fall out of, um, fall out of favor because you, you had to, it, it came back to what I think it really should have been, which is as a lawyer, you have to build your own practice at the end of the day and you have to take control. And the recession reminded people of that. So even if you're at a big law firm now, you have to try to be entrepreneurial. You have to try to build your own practice, build your own, you know, book of business. Mm. The problem is at those places, there are all kinds of limits on what you can do. Whereas if you go out on your own, you know, you don't have the support, but you can do whatever the heck you want. You know, I don't have anyone telling me, no, you can't do that in marketing. No, you can't do that. You know, I get to try whatever I want. So uh, it's kind of a, a give and take. That, that's very interesting because you wouldn't actually think the recession had that big of an impact if you were to look at it from an outsider's perspective. But from your perspective, we now understand that when these um, economic events happen, people start to change their behaviors on a macro and micro level. And that just reflected in your own industry, force, forcing people to think about their behavior in terms of paying for services that may not be the highest value on the money spent at the time. Yep. Yep. And that's absolutely right. That's really, um, uh, you know, what, what we saw is just, there was this change in, in, in the way things worked. Mm. So you did that, you work in the big law firm, you now decide to take a break from working for a big law firm you go into the role of an assistant U.S. attorney. Now, in my mind, you know, the show Billions is out now and it's very popular. I have the image of you being Paulie Giamatti going after, I don't know, who are you going after in Texas? And um, <laughs> what were some of the interesting things to come out of that experience? Okay. Uh, well, so so I got that job and that... Uh, that transition is actually one that's that's not all that uh, uncommon. A lot of lawyers at these big law firms will eventually go take this job as a federal prosecutor because it's it's a place where you actually get to stand up in court on a regular basis and, and kind of get your um, experience doing that. Okay. But most people who go from big law firms, they want to go to offices in New York and Washington and Miami and Chicago or the West Coast. I the mean, sex, so they're trying the to go to places. Right, the sexy places. Uh, and, and, you know, part of it's a sexy place, but also part of it is those offices in many ways are built around this concept and they understand and expect that they're going to have a lot of lawyers who come in and spend three to five years there and then go back into private practice. It's okay. kind of that's the way their offices are built. Well, um, I applied a bunch of different places. And I happened to know a guy who was a, a friend of mine who at the time, I can't remember exactly what he was doing. I think he was a professor at that point. Um, but he had worked on Capitol Hill at one point with someone who is now 
um, had a connection to the Northern District of Texas, which is an office that covers Dallas, Fort Worth, and then really up into the panhandle. Um, and so he got me through that. Um, I guess they got him to lo- actually the people there to actually look at my application, which uh, then I got an interview. And I was a very different lawyer there. I got the job, but I was very different. I was the only lawyer in that office who had not been a prosecutor somewhere else before, either mm-hmm. as at the state level or in the JAG Corps, which is the military mm-hmm. uh, system here. So I was alone uh, in that way, but it was fantastic because it meant that a lot of the other lawyers there, they weren't looking to get on your feet experience. Many of them would rather not have to do that, would rather mm. not have to go to court. So they would actually hand off cases to me uh, to try it. And I got to try, um, I think it was 11 cases or 12 cases over three years, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually is in the federal system. And the federal system trying that many cases is actually unusual. Most federal prosecutors in a lot of these big offices might get a trial a year. Um, so I got some great experience. And a lot of them were you know, just random, a drug case or a, a felon in possession of a firearm case. My, my first trial was a bank robbery case, which it was actually the, um, the, the getaway driver who, who went on trial. Everybody else pled guilty. Um, and then what I really focused on, though, was it was white collar crime, but it was a lot of things like silly things like identity theft. Okay. Um, and then I did have one, you know, my last case was one where um, it was a um, a, a an employee of a company of a big, big publicly traded company. Um, basically engaged in these deals and set up uh, fraudulent invoices through vendors um, and vendor he would do these deals with these vendors actually at one point had his father-in-law um, become a vendor of the company and they would issue fraudulent invoices he would authorize it to be paid and then they would kick back the money to him so again ironically the, the employee pled it was the father-in-law who I had to try and so that was my last trial as a prosecutor Hmm. And looking back on that experience, um, what were some of the key takeaways you you got out of that? Well, so so I mean, there were there were a lot of things I got out of it. One is because I was new at it, I was open to advice from everyone. Okay. Uh, I didn't I didn't think I was um, I was fantastic, and I think knowing that you can always learn and that there's always something that someone else can teach you is an important skill. So, um, I, yeah, yeah. Humility, but you know, it's also just, uh, so it's humility, but also just a willingness and and a desire to keep learning. So there for, for federal prosecutors, there's a, it's a weird little thing that we have a training center at the university of South Carolina, um, I believe it had to do with, I don't know if it's Strom Thurmond, but some, some long serving member of Congress somehow had some power and got pulled that the, all the training for all department of justice attorneys would be done at this uh, facility at the university of South Carolina. So we got to go there. I, I went a few times, you know, one of the times I went was for this, um, kind of basic trial advocacy, teaching you how to do all the aspects of trial. And, and I did the course, but then on top of that, someone just mentioned this series of books that they thought was helpful. 
I went out and bought it. I mean, it was a $700 series of books and I just read it cover to cover. It's like mm. seven or eight books. And I loved it because I, I wanted to learn my craft. Mm. Uh, and I can think of an experience where when you would, when we would try cases there, you'd often have another attorney sit with you and be what's called second chair counsel. Now, a lot of times they don't do anything. They're just sitting there. You know, maybe they have a thought and they send you a little note. Often they haven't even been involved in the case, so they don't know much. Uh, but it can be an outside set of eyes and ears. Well, I would always ask and get feedback from the attorney who sat with me just generally about, hey, what did I do well? What did I not do right? What should I have done differently? And would try to incorporate it. Well, <laughs> and I contrast that. One time I was second chair for a guy and he – it was this little verbal tick he had that he would start every question with, yeah, I think it was and or something like that. He, he just had this little thing and mm -hmm. he didn't think a big thing, but once you heard it once, it just drove you nuts. Cause that was then the only thing you heard. I mean, that was kind of the only <laughs> thing you noticed about each one of his questions. Mm -hmm. And so I said that to him and rather than take it as like, Oh, Hey, that's good. I'll try not. I mean, he got upset about it. And so that's, you know, the kind of thing that I think because he thought he was very good at what he did, he didn't think he needed advice from me, whereas I was always happy to take advice. And so I think that made me much better at what I did. And, and so I've tried to keep that humility throughout, you know, my career afterwards as well. And how did you find your way into IP? Because your experience thus far has been pretty much all over the place. I fell into it. After I was a prosecutor, um, I was trying to decide what to do. And so kind of, um, what had happened was the firm where I'd worked with now justice Gorsuch, you know, I kept in touch with some of those folks. Um, and, uh, I was just talking to one and he made a comment to me at some point, um, uh, about, you know, how the firm was doing. And so I had, decided I was going to leave being a prosecutor. So I reached out again to the main partner at that firm to express interest, see if they would like to have me back. And he said, Oh, I think so, but let me get back with you. And me being the impatient guy that I am with a bit of ADD, like many entrepreneurs have, mm -hmm. I didn't like sitting around waiting and doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so I also decided, well, let me see what other options I might have. And so I talked to some legal recruiters who set up some interviews with me. But then I also literally went on to Google and typed, I think, Washington, D.C. litigation boutique or something like that just to see what came up. And I came across this little firm with three lawyers that just looked amazingly interesting. It looked like they were doing amazing work. They were um, you know, about by seniority. One was a few years more, but about that level. And I just said, wow, this seems great. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I don't know these guys from Adam. I'm going to send them an email. And so I did. And they got in touch with me for some reason. And um, I, I, I then, by the way, did get offered the option to go back to the firm I'd been at. Again, mm -hmm. very safe, wonderful salary, wonderful firm. Um, and then I met with these guys and talked with them and got an offer to go work for them. Uh, it was an entrepreneurial place. They didn't yet have solid cash flow. I had the option to join them. You know, like I had this salary, but not really because it, my letter said, I understood this is my salary, but I understand I'm only going to get paid when the firm has money and they don't currently. <laughs> and so, you know, it was this very entrepreneurial, um, uh, e even thought process, but I joined them. 
and I joined them and they were mainly, um, uh, lawyers who did antitrust work, which is, um, competition law. Okay. And, and that's what their background was. I had never done that. When I joined them, they had a, a couple of big antitrust cases going. And then like two weeks later, this intellectual property case, a patent infringement case that they had filed their first one ever came back to life. Well, they didn't have any experience with that. I didn't have any experience with antitrust law. So they kind of handed it to me and said, here, why don't you run with this? <laughs> and so I did. And I spent the next uh, about nine or 10 months of my life on that case against one of the biggest firms in the country. And I, I fell in love immediately. It was wow. just um, one of those things where I had found my calling within the law of what I wanted to do with subject matter wise. And um, that was – seven years ago now, and um, uh, I really haven't looked back since then. How did you recognize that? But how was your calling? <laughs> you know, it, it's a hard question. It, it kind of is like being in love. It, it's hard to even explain it. Mm. Um, it just, I mean, the best way I can try to sum it up is uh, there were so many things about it that uh, patent law is a very complex area of law and a patent lawsuit is a very complex area and there's all kinds of issues that don't come up and that I had never dealt with. And so I was literally, I was learning patent law uh, and learning patent litigation while I was handling this case against, uh, I, at one point I think I identified 10 lawyers on the other side against basically just me. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was, Handling the case, trying the case, and also learning the law at the same time, but I just enjoyed it. And, you know, I know what it is I enjoyed. There were so many aspects that were a mental challenge for me that that, that got my juices flowing. But it, it, I, I can't really say how. I just knew. You just um, know. I just knew it, it – it, I was getting run ragged. I mean I was having to fly all over the country. I was working crazy hours, but I was having a good time. Okay. And I think maybe that's a good sign when you are just getting run around like crazy, but you're still having fun doing it. That's probably a good sign that you have found your calling. Okay, but what was the causal factor that caused you to leave that firm? Because if you had found your, your calling, I'll call it calling, and then you were enjoying what you were doing, it stands to reason that most people would want to stay and take it as far as they can for the rest of their lives. But you also now decided to transition into being an entrepreneur? Well, what it was, was I had made one of the classic mistakes that entrepreneurs make. And one of the classic mistakes that I advise my clients uh, uh, not to make now. Uh, you'll remember when I said I joined that firm, I had this letter that said, you know, that my salary was X, but only when I was going to get, um, only when the firm had money. Mm -hmm. It, the letter, though, didn't ever – didn't have anything and there was nothing in writing that addressed how I would actually become a partner in the firm, a true partner and a member with a, an actual ownership interest. And throughout the time I was at that firm, they – you know, the, the two partners, they treated me unbelievably fairly. We split things not quite evenly but almost evenly for the time I was there. Um, everything was fine. Everything was going great. And my wife, but towards the end, my wife got pregnant and I said, Hey, uh, you know, I need to actually be added in as a true partner because the difficulty was I had all the downside risk. I mean, if the firm didn't make money, I wasn't making money, mm -hmm. but I had no guarantee on upside. If we had, 
a lot of our cases were contingency fee. And if we had hit some huge contingency fee, I wasn't guaranteed anything. Uh, you know, I, I would get something only if these other two partners decided that in a sense that they wanted to let me be part of it. So, uh, you know, I said, Hey, we need to work out adding me to the deal. And we started talking about it. That was in late summer. And we didn't really talk a lot at that time. I kind of figured we would do something at the end of the year, just obviously for tax purposes, it's easier if, you know, it had kind of been effective at the beginning of the year. Um, so we then write, my daughter was born in December and right at the end of the year, we, we talked briefly, but not much. And I'd kind of left it with them and saying, Hey, look, cause there were these issues of how do we split the things for cases that had already come in versus cases that came in after that point, meaning new cases that were brought in. And what I had stressed to him is I said, Hey, I know it's not going to be even going forward, but I'd like to get us to as close as possible for cases that come in you know, from today going forward. Uh, so you guys tell me how much you need and how little of I, I get of everything in the past to get us there. And so I kind of left it there. And then we didn't talk again about it until the end of February. And that was, I kind of figured that it was the two of them trying to talk amongst themselves and figure it out. And then one of the partners actually didn't live in Washington and he was in town at the end of February and I was taking him to the airport when he was going home. And it was a Friday, and I vividly remember it. We were walking from the office to my car, and he kind of broached the subject. And I could tell that, you know, in a sense, he knew that what he was going to say I wasn't going to really be happy with. And sitting here today, I have no idea what the offer was, don't remember any of it. But I just remember how I felt. Okay. that it didn't feel fair. It felt, um, like it wasn't, um, you know, it, it was, you know, it wasn't fair to me considering that, I mean, the firm had been around two years or so before I had joined, but I had joined at a time when I also had no guarantees of anything. And so that's how I felt. We talked on the way to the airport, uh, dropped him off. I called my wife. She could tell I was not happy. And she said, uh, I think I need you at home uh, this afternoon, so please come home. I need, it, she could sense that I didn't. I needed to not go back to the office. Mm -hmm. So I went home, and I was kind of stewing, and, and the problem was that that wasn't doing any good. So the next morning, I emailed the two partners and said, hey, and again, I don't remember what I said, but I, I think I said something along the lines of, hey, I was really kind of, you know, floored or something by, you know, by that, but, you know, I don't think it does good for me to sit and stew about it. Can we get on the phone to talk about it? And I think the first time we could work out was the next day on Sunday. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, I'd kind of like worked out what the math would have meant. And, you know, it would have meant a pretty significant pay cut over what I had had based on what our numbers had been. So I, I knew that. But so the next day we had our call. And, and here's why this is a problem of not having this in writing up front. Well, we're dealing with a, a, a set pie, 100 percent of the equity. Yeah. And for any person at that point to explain why they should get more, they have to explain why you should get less. Yep. And part of that can turn into, uh, as you can imagine, comments that can be toxic to the relationship, right? Because it's about, you know, value saying you're not that valuable. Yeah. Yeah, you're not that valuable is what they're saying to you. And 
so that, I mean, there were some comments made on that. Um, and again, sitting here today, I don't know who was right. I just know that we couldn't come to terms and that because we, we screwed up and the three of us screwed up and didn't do a deal at the outset, we were in this position. And at the end of that call, I knew my time at that firm was done. I, um, literally at that point with my two month old daughter, my wife and my brother-in-law, we drove to my office, picked up my personal effects and dropped off anything I had that was not, you know, not mine, you know, the property of the firm because I knew I was pretty much done. And so there I was and had to make a decision on what to do. And, and, you know, I, I thought about going and working for someone else, but eventually I just decided to go out on my own and, and actually take control of my own destiny fully and a hundred percent. And so that's, that's how Clink LLC was born. Um, this is just a classic. I mean, we've seen this play out Facebook, Snapchat, a whole bunch of other startups that are famous now. You see maybe three or four people start a company together, and then somewhere down the line, when it's time to actually divvy up the equity, there's an issue that cannot be resolved, and that leads to separation. Of, yep. Um, and the difficult part is, you know, the separate the business separation can be difficult. Um, but quite honestly, the bigger problem is that oftentimes you are friends as well. I mean, yes. so literally one of these partners, so I'd gotten married in the Bahamas when hurricane Sandy came through, he had literally been on the last plane in, I mean, basically flying through a tropical storm to get to my wedding, wow. you know? And, and so, I mean, that's, you know, these were the people who the three of us, it was the three of us against the world. Yeah. And, you know, then all of a sudden you're against each other and it just, um, it, it's one of those things it's, it's hard to deal with. So that's why one of the things I stressed every entrepreneur I work with is if you're, if you have co-founders, if you're in a partnership, get a written agreement and get it today. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's easier today than it'll be tomorrow. Yesterday would have been better. But, you know, we can't go back in time. So get it in writing today. And so that's one of the, the key lessons that I um, really, really work with uh, clients on and even prospective clients. Often I will have people come to me thinking they have an IP problem and I say, no, no, you have a business formation problem. And, and I get them to take care of that because that is their their most pressing problem. Mm. <coughs> so now you're unemployed Two-month-old baby. <laughs> no, no, self-employed, not okay, unemployed. Self <laughs> I beg your pardon. So now you're self-employed, but cash flow hasn't started coming in yet. You have a little baby. You have a supportive wife that has been with you through the ups and downs. And you kind of have to make, you know, payment for the bills, mortgage, and all that stuff. How did you start hustling, getting in those first clients, you know, solving people's problems and growing your business yeah, well, so luckily, because at that prior firm, um, cash flow had always been lumpy and, un and, and irregular, you know, I always had a bit of a runway. I mean, I always had money, cash reserves, because just, I mean, I even working out of the firm, I would go six months without a paycheck. So luckily, I had a money in the bank. Um, and I was also, you know, I had a client come pretty quickly. I ironically, it was not 
not an IP issue, um, but it was a, a friend of a friend who uh, was uh, on the management and a, a, a minority shareholder in a company, and he was being pushed out and needed a lawyer to represent him in, in, a, in basically a valuation proceeding to um, uh, basically push for uh, a higher valuation to get a higher uh, buyout. So I quickly was able to represent him in that action. But really one of the saving graces and what allowed me and gave me the freedom to do this and turned out I did get an offer to go join a fir- another firm. Um, but one of the things that gave me the ability not to do that was uh, there was this lawyer that I had kind of crossed paths with, paths with many times. He had tried to recruit me a couple of different times, but his firm was down in Texas. I, you know, I decided I wasn't going to be in Texas. Um, but I had noticed that he had a lawyer on his law firm, what you know, based here in Washington D.C. So I just reached out to him pretty soon after I transitioned out of that other firm. I mean, I think almost immediately, not really knowing what I was asking, just almost seeing if you know they had an office here, or what the situation was. And his law firm does a lot of legal malpractice, accounting malpractice, just kind of professional malpractice cases. And he, he got my email and he reached out and he said, you know, something like, wow, that's, you know, real serendipity. His firm had just been hired, um, in a legal malpractice case that had to do with a patent litigation case and they had no experience in patent litigation. So they needed someone who knew that substantive, substantive area of law to come on board and help them with the case. So... That I mean, I think a, I think I got signed up to work with them on a kind of a flat monthly fee, um, and it wasn't you know just basically work with them on this case. Probably two months after uh, or three months after I started my firm, so that gave me immediate cash flow coming in the door, which helped me gave me some some more runway, um, and then from there I just started hustling and. I actually made a lot of mistakes early on when I was hustling. I, <laughs> I did probably the classic mistake of um, trying to cast a wide net and be everything to everybody and not admit that I was an IP – not say, hey, I'm an IP lawyer. That's what I do. So um, you didn't I, I brand tried. yourself? No, I didn't brand myself. I tried – I mean I, I, <laughs> I look back at the things I did. I mean at various points I was trying to market myself at, you know, to do like just legal writing for other lawyers, to do – you know, uh, any kind of civil lawsuit anyone under the sun would have, uh, fraud case, just everything. I just, you know, was was trying anything. It was the shotgun approach. Let's, you know, or the the let's throw spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks. And you know, the problem, as you probably know, is when you do that, I I don't know who I'm talking to, and I can't have a single message. I can't have any coherent brand message. But forget like active marketing. My friends and colleagues didn't even know what I did. I couldn't even tell my friends, hey, I'm this kind of lawyer. This is the kind of client you want to send to me. And so it didn't work. And at some point I started working with a business coach and she said, well, what kind of lawyer are you? (laughs) That was her first question. And and that's what made me say, well, I'm an IP lawyer. She said, okay, uh, well, what industry do you work with? And I said, what do you mean? And she was thinking – telecommunications or uh, internet of things or some kind of specific mm-hmm. um, technology area. And I, I, I gave it a lot of thought and I just spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I said, you know, what I really want to do is work with entrepreneurs. I want to work with other people who are hustling, who are starting their businesses, 
who are in that early stage. And that's when I, that was my aha moment. And that's when I got back to being in love with my job. Um, because I had a purpose, I had a why, and that is what really helped me turn the corner in my, in my own business. So what, what was so attractive about working with entrepreneurs? Well, to you, well, entrepreneurs are a a wonderful group. I mean, they're, they're, they're optimists. They, you know, they have big dreams. They are constantly, you know, trying new things. They are out there. They're, they're not stuck in their ways. Um, you know, there, there's just so much energy around the concept and around entrepreneurs that I, I deal with and that I work with, um, as opposed to established companies that are, um, stuck in their ways, kind of annoying and, 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 you know, in some ways, and, you know, they don't like me because I don't fit their, their mold of a lawyer. Uh, I'm sitting here, she talked to you, I'm wearing jeans. I mean, that, you know, I, I don't want to wear a suit to work if I don't have to. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, there's things like that. I think that, uh, attract me to the, to the group and there's just an energy and a buzz and I feed off of that. And I get to play a part in helping these people be the engine that helps our economy grow. Great. So what were some of the, well, not in your business now, but for entrepreneurs, what are some of the main mistakes you see entrepreneurs make when they either form their businesses or they're thinking about um, the assets that go into their business, like the intangible assets called intellectual property? Okay. Well, the first thing I'd say is we've already gone over the biggest mistake. Mm-hmm. I see not, people not make signing. five mistakes and yeah. not getting it in writing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the second one and one that I see so many entrepreneurs make is um, has to do with their branding and, and their business name. And they will do all kinds of thinking and they'll go to, to Reddit, they'll go to Quora, they'll get opinions on all of these things about coming up with the perfect business name. And they'll, they'll test it and they'll, they'll come up with these ideas and they will get to the name that they think is just perfect, fits their brand image, fits, you know, everything they want, but they don't ever think about trademark implications. And there's a couple of things there. A lot of people, when I start to say this, say, oh yeah, they don't trademark their name. I said, no, no, I don't care if you trademark your name. I shouldn't say I don't care. I think you probably should if it's a good name. My bigger concern is have you made sure that someone else doesn't already have a trademark? Because so many (laughs) cases this happens where somebody starts a business and they didn't do that work. And when you're little, nobody knows about you. But when you get bigger, all of a sudden people hear about you. And then they send you a letter. And you're probably going to have to change your name at that point after you've put blood, sweat, tears, time and effort into building your brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just it's a horrible mistake. I I think I mentioned that I brew beer. Well, I follow the craft beer industry. It's not a a complete horror story. But here in my local area in Washington, D.C., our first new craft brewery was D.C. Brow. And one of their beers was called The Citizen. That's one of their flagship. They have three beers that are kind of their flagships all the time, all uh, available, and one is the Citizen. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward a couple of years, a, a new brewery, I don't know, nine, ten miles up the road in the first suburb outside of D.C., 
in Maryland uh, formed. And, you know, they launched to the market, not with their product, but with their initial launch plan and talking about their branding as the citizen or citizen brewing company. And somehow someone, (laughs) their company never even thought about, Hey, our competitor right down the road with the citizen beer is not going to like this. And so DC Brow, sure enough, sent them a cease and desist or some kind of letter. And um, it came to a happy resolution. Instead of citizen brewing, it became denizen brewing. They brew great beer. They're a lot of fun. And and, and so it worked out. But if you think about it, they had already put time and effort into developing the brand citizen brewing company, and they had to change it. So that's the big, biggest, easiest mistake I see that, that is very avoidable is just, uh, you know, run a trademark check. And, it, you know, it's if you're in the U.S., it's pretty simple. You can go to the, the, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and run a search through their system and then, you know, go on to Google and just do a Google search and see what comes up. Um, and so, so that's the biggest piece of advice I'd give to people other than get it in writing. And for some entrepreneurs that are working maybe somewhere in Europe or Asia, for example, and they're hoping that the next big app or the next big website is going to come from their work. Do they need to register a trademark in the U.S.? Is there such a thing as um, if you register in the U.S., it's going to give you global protection or one of those things? Because so, I've heard a rumor like that in the past, and I don't know for a fact if that's true or not. No, sadly, it doesn't work that way. Okay. And I'll be honest on trademarks. You know, I know trademarks you in the U.S. You file in the U.S. and there's there's similar places elsewhere. I mean, you may have heard. I'm trying to remember. I think China, for example, recently granted a number of trademarks to Trump. I believe I heard that. So you you have those kinds of things are nation by nation. In the patent realm, there is in in there is a large group that are under the PCT, so it's kind of a common um, uh, practice, uh, and that's a lot of Europe, et cetera. But you know, you can do those things. It, it, when you get to that point, you know, you need to probably, if you are thinking globally, you should be talking to a lawyer. You should be getting that guidance on those things, and they can walk you through the process of what you need to be doing. Okay, and you just mentioned patents now. Um, uh, there's this popular inventor, I think his name is Stephen Key. I think he wrote one of the more popular books on being an inventor. And one of the biggest advice I read in his book was that if you're an inventor, you don't necessarily have to apply for a patent right away, especially if you are going to try and leverage your product to another company to produce it for you, that you can actually get started because the process of registering a patent is prohibitively expensive for most entrepreneurs that are just starting out. Do you think that's a wise decision to approach it in that manner? Well, what I would say is that, in my view, patents get um, probably way not not probably they get way too much attention okay. um, from entrepreneurs from businesses um, and 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 let me give you this stat that I've heard that I I, I, I can't guarantee it's true 100 percent but I, I it, it rings true to me 95 percent of issued patents will never result in the inventor or anyone who owns them getting a penny either oh. from licensing it to someone else or making the product themselves 
Hmm. Uh, most patents end up just being a vanity project where the, in <laughs> the inventor gets this thing that says, I have a patent, and they're never going to make money from it. So, and, and they're expensive. Getting a patent is, you know, with the help of an attorney, is going to cost you $10,000 or more in most cases, yeah. and it's going to take you years of your life. Yeah. So, it's one of those things that's very, um, you know, uh, it's one of those areas where I think too many people put too much stock in patents. And, and I, I get so frustrated here in the U.S. I will, you know, when I'm watching TV, I will see these ads for various companies out there that are essentially trying to get people to come to them to pay them to get their patents. And, you know, they're basically promising these um, promising these inventors and not really promising, but giving them hope that they're going to make millions of dollars off their invention. And I would just say anytime someone wants to charge you a, a dollar and is trying to make a promise that you're going to get money out of it, you should be careful in IP or anywhere else. So my clients, for example, I, I basically do strategic planning with clients and then I outsource. I have them go to someone else to file the patents, to file the trademarks. Partly it's – I'm not a patent attorney. You have to be a special kind of attorney to actually do that. Do that. Okay. But it's also – it's a very um, – it, it's a process that it pays that to, to work with someone that that's all they do yeah. every day of the week. And with trademarks, the, the best trade way to get a trademark is to go to a company that where it's a room full of paralegals who do the actual drafting and then an attorney quickly signs off because it's just much more cost-effective. But so, you know, if I advise a client to go get a trademark or to go to get a patent, they can know I'm not getting a dime out of it. I, you know, I just think it's a good idea. If the person who's telling you, hey, yeah, you should, you should spend $10,000 to get a patent is also the person you're going to pay $10,000 to, I'd be careful. Um, you know, I think, you know, and I know a little bit, I mean, that Stephen, um, key has the company invent, right. Which yes, you know, I think coaches people on these things and, and trying to do it. Um, you know, I've never dealt with him. I don't, I can't say anything good, bad or other about them. Yeah. I mean, I know of him is about all, um, you know, you can do, you, there are ways to do it, like doing provisional patent applications, which are pretty cheap. Um, and do that basically to get a marker in the ground and then start negotiating to try to get someone um, to do something else. Again, what I'd say is if you get to the point that your product is truly innovative and there is a market for it, it's probably going to be worthwhile uh, hiring an attorney to do the patent and figuring out, out a way to do that. Oh. Yeah, because I, I read his book and I just felt it was a bootstrapper's approach to try and just mm -hmm. leverage it without having to spend that money up front. I, I, th I thought it was a neat idea, but um, with these things, you always tend to want to err on the side of caution, especially when you have so many patent trolls, right? Yep. So now what is a way to defend against a patent troll, for example? Because that's another big issue that people are very scared of if they are running their business and they have... A new thing I'm above they've invented and they feel somebody's going to just come up from the internet somewhere and just try to um, shake them down for money well so, so I mean there, there's there's a number of things you can do I mean what I would say is that a lot of that is um, I, I would like to think that a lot of that has um, I don't want to say has passed but the worst of patent troll patent trolling I think has gone away mm. 
you, you know, you, there, there were some pretty infamous cases uh, here in the States. Um, there was this, this entity, I think it was MPHJ, that um, asserted that it basically owned the right to any Wi-Fi scanner, and I think that would email the scan to you. And so they were sending letters to you know, just about everybody. I mean, they were, to you, to me, to anybody who had bought one of these products, they were sending these letters and, and trying to shake you down for thousands of dollars. Um, that I gather, you know, I'm not hearing as much about that anymore. Okay. You know, most of the people who are getting targeted now are, are established companies. Not always, you know, some of the smaller companies will, there are things that you can do. Um, but, but honestly, there isn't a ton. I mean, and it's a sad statement, but there's just not much you can do because there aren't that many ways to defend yourself against a true, uh, you know, a patent troll who's just, you know, dead set on trying to, you know, cause trouble for you because those companies, they will sue you based on a patent that doesn't apply and then basically demand that you pay them fifteen to $20,000. And, you know, for almost any company, it's going to be cheaper to pay fifteen dollars to $20,000 than to hire me or anyone else to try to represent them. And, and there's not a lot of leverage points. A lot of companies have tried to develop leverage points. The difficulty is these companies are – it's a shell company that owns just the patent. So there's not much you're going to get out of them um, if, you know, you can't go after them for anything. There are, you know, you can look into, but again, it'd probably be too expensive, but there's insurance products out there um, that you can consider buying patent insurance. But, you know, I think those are probably, well, they're not going to be a good deal. Right? They just won't <laughs> by their very nature because uh, you're buying insurance. And so it, you know, you're going to be paying a, a premium above what the true value is to someone. Um, but, you know, I think the the bigger thing that people should worry about is not trolls, but making sure, you know, looking at your competitors and see, Hey, do your competitors have any patents that you need to worry about? That's, that's the more important step that I would take. I mean, I, I was actually on, I don't know if, I don't remember it's Reddit or Quora earlier this week. And, you know, <laughs> someone literally posted, well, hey, I've created this p- product that's loosely based on this patent pending product <laughs> of a competitor you know, I want to find a lawyer to look at it and let me know if I'm in trouble. And I'm like, I'm like, when you say I'm loosely based, I, I, I imply, I, I infer what you're saying is you kind of copied this product. So, you know, but, but that's what I'd worry about more is, I mean, if you have a, a, you know, competitors that you can really, you know, quickly identify, you know, you can search and see if they have any patents and, and take a look and see if, if there's anything to worry about there. Mm, okay. And as we start to wind down, I want to talk about something that's um, not often talked about, which is trade secrets and um, knowledge management. So take, for example, most entrepreneurs usually start out working in a company for someone else. And then they are also side hustlers. When they're off work, they tend to be working their own, on their own projects. So if someone were to create a product, a service, or something like that, based off of the knowledge they gained and they learned on the job, who uh, does the company own a claim on their product? It depends. Um, okay. You know, it depends so, on what I would... <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of tricky, you know, if 
you're working in a particular field, take for example medical devices, and then just on your off time, maybe Saturday, Sunday, you're just tinkering around and you're figuring something out. But basically, everything you're doing is based off of the knowledge you gained on the job, but you're not working on a project for the job. You're working on a project for yourself. Yeah, and 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 so what I would say is it it partly depends. I mean, so uh, a lot of companies will have in an employment contract they will have a clause about this, and um, you know the language of that clause can vary. I mean, some of it will be you know that that you know inventions made you know will basically be clearly limited to what you do on work time for the company's purpose, et cetera. And so in that case, you should be fine. Um, this, this question though brings up in my mind, I don't know if you've seen the HBO series, Silicon Valley, but one of the plot, one of the plot lines (laughs) in Silicon Valley early on was like this. He had created this product and I think literally had just done, you know, a five minute test on it or something at a a work computer. And so the the issue was, did that give them rights? So, Mm -hmm. you know, what I would tell you is the first thing you should do is, is, is look at your employment contract, see if you have well, if you have an employment contract, what's in there about it and try to understand that language. Um, candidly, I also imagine, you know, and I haven't looked at every state, but I would imagine some states would, you know, just look down upon anything that, that was broader than, uh, that was not just limited to work you actually did on company time or using company resources. California, I don't know, but I know California, for example, you can't have a non-compete. They just won't honor those. So, you know, you're going to have to look at that on a state by state basis, figure out where you are, look at your contract. But some advice I'd give to you as you're doing it is don't do it on company time. Don't use company resources. I mean, if you have a, if you have a company computer, don't use your company computer to do it. You, you know, again, maybe that, maybe that stinks. It means you have to buy your own computer and you wouldn't otherwise buy, but you know, to the extent possible, separate it out completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, Make sure that you can document that it was separate and that you didn't do it on work time, that you developed it on this other computer. And, you know, again, nowadays you'll know, I mean, there's, you know, anything we do on a computer, there's metadata that says exactly when it happened. So, you know, you'll be able to prove that up. Okay. So we have business plans, we have marketing plans, and some of the things that are coming up now that are helping people to create and generate wealth are based off of things like um, apps, you know, AI, VR, and all that stuff. So from reading your book, your your advice to entrepreneurs is that they need to create an IP plan as well, right? That's right. So give us, like, just a quick rundown of what does creating an IP plan entail because you already have 101 things you're doing as an entrepreneur, you know, keeping the lights on, writing your business plan, selling your business, getting clients, servicing clients. What's an IP plan and how does one start to create and implement that plan? Okay, well, so so there's a couple of parts to an IP plan. So think of an IP plan as the offensive and the defensive side. So on the offensive side, the purpose of your planning is to essentially identify all of your assets, and maybe not all, but as many of your intellectual property assets as you possibly can, and then to kind of create a way to rank them. 
And, and you do that by thinking through how valuable are they, uh, how much are they directed to like your core business versus just some little ancillary piece. And again, let's let's use a simple example there on brand names. Your actual brand name is always going to be more important than a product name, mm-hmm. most likely. I mean, maybe that's not true. In some cases, maybe the product name is more important than the brand name. But you know, those types of things, and you're really what you're doing is identifying the potential assets, figuring out have you protected it, yes or no? How important is it to your business? Um, how valuable would it be? And then thinking through, am I going to be able to protect it? And how expensive is it going to be to protect it? And after you've done all that effectively, you can then (laughs) go through the process of saying, well, I've got, you know, three, whatever your number is, $4,000 total and figure out how you're going to spend and how you're going to allocate those resources among all of your different, um, potential options. Because the fact is that unless you're IBM, you can't, protect every one of your assets. You're going to have to make decisions and say, well, I'm going to protect this, but not that. And I'm not going to file a patent because that's too expensive and it's not key to my business. So, you know, you're going to make those types of decisions. But again, the point of that piece is really to get you thinking about it, to get you focusing on it and to get you in the practice of identifying your potential intellectual property. Um, so that, you know, it's there and you're not just letting it kind of pass without any, um, uh, without even thinking about it, without making a determination. That's the first part. The second part of the plan is the defensive side. And and this is the process. I mean, we kind of talked about it with patents, but patents ironically, or or maybe not ironically, it's the hardest area to try to do a defensive strategy just because (laughs) there's no way to really search for everything. You just can't. So someone could come out of the woodwork and with a patent that they claim covers something crazy about just your general business practice that you would have no way of knowing. But outside of that, you know, it's pretty easy to set up procedures to make sure you're not infringing someone's trademarks. I mean, you, 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 like you, I said, you go to the, um, uh, the, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, run a search to see if anybody's using these names. Go on Google, see if anyone's using it. You know, if you can decide, there are services out there that, for a couple hundred bucks, you can run a, a trademark search and just get more in-depth information than that. I mean, they'll literally search uh, Secretary of State's offices from the different states. They'll search domain registries. They'll search all of these different things to try to find uh, any potential problems. So you can do that. Similar things in copyright. You need to have a procedure to make sure that you or your employees, one of your employees doesn't do something like grab an image off Google Images and put it on your website without license. Because if you do, you're probably infringing a copyright and someone might come after you. Mm. You know, it's similar, you know, if you have a podcast, don't play, you know, don't just pick (laughs) one of your MP3 songs that you've got and put it on your podcast. Because if you do, you're infringing a copyright. Mm. So it's, it's simple things like that, just setting up procedures. And then, you know, this is one that's kind of, uh, you mentioned trade secrets briefly, and that's, you know, a big piece of any IP plan is the trade secrets piece of making sure that you have the right confidentiality clauses in place, um, that you have the right protections. And again, it's, it's simple stuff. And, and I don't know how you operate. I have, you know, my phone password protected, not, not with anything crazy, but with a password. I'm stunned that I know people <laughs> who don't have a password on their phone. 
which to me, you know, if you have business information on that, that's inexcusable. I mean, you've got to have you know, just simple levels of protection so that someone can't get access to your confidential information. Uh, so, so that's the, those are the basic pieces. If you're a bigger company, there's more like setting up a team and doing things like that. But you know, all of that really depends on how big your company is. Great. So as we start to wrap up, I have two final questions for you. I know we've run a little bit over and I apologize for that. I just wanted to get all these things out there just because um, this is a tricky subject that is not really covered in detail. And as an entrepreneur, you really want to make sure that, you know, anything that could hinder your progress in your business is protected appropriately. And who better to talk to than a strategist in this field? So um, let's just take it back and do some wrapping up. And what was the worst job you've ever had and what did you learn from it <laughs> the worst job i ever had yeah oh. so you can go back as far as high school paper route whatever <laughs> well the, the worst job i ever had probably was the only job i was ever fired from and Whoa, that was you were fired? Uh, yeah i was working for my father um, when I was in, I think it was high school. So my father and my uncle ran a chain of drugstores and periodically. So during the summers and things like that, my brother and I would work for him pretty frequently. And sometimes my cousins would, and this was, you know, I mean, it, it, it was warehouse work that wasn't all that much fun. But on top of that, my father had a bit of a, um, he, he can get upset randomly at something and kind of go off. And on top of that, you know, he had the right attitude, which was that he believed that if his sons were working at his business, they needed to work above and beyond. I mean, yeah. it, it was the opposite of, you know, some, some people think, Hey, I'm the boss's kid. I don't have to, you know, have to work hard with us. It was the opposite. We were going to work harder than everybody else. We we're going to be there earlier. We we're going to get paid less, all of that. Well, so, uh, you know, it wasn't a great job. And part of it was, Things like we would do inventory for him during the 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 uh, around Christmas and New Year's, I guess is what it was. But and that we didn't even get paid for. But <laughs> we would have to get up at like five or be at the store at five in the morning to start counting. And then you know once the counting was done, we would just wait for you know at some point we'd get called back to do some recounts. And again, it was your whole day was you know blown and you didn't get paid because we were the boss's kids. So you can imagine that was not a fun job. I got fired, not for anything I did. Uh, we were in the warehouse and, and my dad had a system where you had to key in and out of a computer to, to, uh, key in like when you were starting your shift and ending your shift. And okay. I think you could only key yourself in or out. I think within five minutes before or after whatever you were supposed to be, your time was without a supervisor coming in keying something in, uh, you know, obviously I didn't want people leaving early without permission. And I guess the, the, they didn't want you doing running up overtime without permission. So we were sitting there and I think it was like, there was like 10 minutes till we were supposed to get done. My brother and I were both there and my three cousins, this was the oh, one of the few times we were there. Um, and we couldn't find the supervisor either to give us another task or to key us out. So we were sitting around and all of a sudden I see my cousin, my youngest cousin run up and jump onto my brother's back. 
literally the second this is happening on the uh, the out of the corner of my eye on the other end i see my father walking into the warehouse who just blows goes ballistic and fires us both on the spot he couldn't fire my cousins just my brother and i got fired i, I got fired as collateral damage for my brother and my cousin uh, screwing around on the job wow uh, that's, so that's funny that, that, that was my worst job and my only time being fired. For someone that's in law school, for example, about to graduate, it's almost May, and they're looking to follow you along this career path that you've, that you've chosen and you've made a living from, what would you advise that person to think about or to do to set them up for success? What I would say is I would, if I were you, want to think very carefully about what I wanted to do and, and, and think temperament-wise more than anything else. One of the, the, the things that I realized late in my life and, and why I'm doing more and more advising and less and less litigation lawsuit is that it, for much of my career, I spent all day, every day fighting with people. And, you know, some people love that. Some people, it's great. They love it. It, it invigorates them. But if you're not one of those people, you know, there, there are certain areas of law that just aren't going to work for you. So, you know, whether it's law or business or anything else, make sure that whatever job, you know, or whatever career path you're going down is fit to your temperament and not just to your skills, your skills and your temperament, because, if it's not, you're, you're going to be drained in life. But if, if you find a job where it fits your skills and your temperament, you're going to feel great. And you're going to, you know, you're going to go home every day invigorated. Like right now it's, you know, it's later where you are, G, but it's, you know, six 30 here, but I feel great. I mean, I'm, yeah. I don't feel bad being here cause I'm having a great time. Uh, and so, you know, I think if you can do that, you will, um, be much happier in life generally. So that, that's the biggest piece of advice I could give people. Nice. And for the entrepreneur that's in the trenches working, building their business, you know, what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? We've covered a lot, but um, something that you think is not like popular or would I call it not popular or more like some, some word of wisdom that is not popular knowledge. Yeah, what I would say is, uh, I think too many entrepreneurs focus on hitting home runs. Um, and I think what you should do is, and this is essentially what I do. My goal is at the end of every day, I want to be slightly ahead of where I was at the beginning of the day. And if I do that every day of my life, I'm going to have unbelievable amounts of success. Um, so I, I, I focus on hitting singles every day, just, you know, do, do the, do the, the stuff that you can just do and, and, you know, take action. Don't worry about, you know, uh, trying to have, you know, a, a million dollars in my bank account tomorrow. Don't do that. I mean, try to get $10 today and $10 tomorrow and just do that. And so it's with marketing, it's, you know, try to, you know, just add your content, you know, it's going to take time, but if you just every day put in some work eventually you will get a huge snowball rolling and it will um, propel you to unbelievable success. Great. And with that said, it's been a pleasure talking to you for the past hour and a half. I really had a lot of fun diving into your background, getting your life story, getting 
so much wisdom about your intellectual property skill set and how we as entrepreneurs need to start thinking about those intangible assets that are now the bedrock of wealth creation. And so for people, I'll link to your website in the show notes, but for people that want to reach you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, I, I'm most active on Twitter, and it's at Bobby Clink, and Clink is K-L-I-N-C-K. Uh, I tweet about um, not not just intellectual property law. I tweet about issues related to entrepreneurship, startups, marketing, just things that are interesting to me. Um, th- you may see something about beer every once in a while. You're going to see some things about intellectual property, uh, but also if I, you'll see posts in my blog. So there may be things about intellectual property that is interesting and that you want to learn about that you can see. And um, so that that's the best place to get me. Also, if you have a question. Um, you know, shoot me a tweet. Uh, and if it's something that we can discuss on Twitter, great. If it's not, you know, I'll link up with you and give you a way to, you know, my email and we can uh, sync up on email. Um, you can do a direct message, but I may miss those. Your best bet on, on Twitter is just to, to send me a tweet. Um, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just, you know, Robert Clink. Um, I, I, Facebook, I don't really use as much, but so, so Twitter and, and LinkedIn are the best ways. And then um, my website and um, also I actually have a um, on my website a free uh, course. It's just a four part uh, course on IP planning where people get a free copy of the book um, and in addition to some uh, worksheets and then uh, four videos where they get to look at my ugly mug where I talk to them for about things for about 10 or 15 minutes. They can get that at www.clinkllc.com forward slash podcast. And that'll give you a way to sign up for that course if you're interested. Great. And I think for you, why don't you start like a YouTube channel talking about law and beer at the same time? Because you seem to have a passion in both. So I don't know. You could probably want to do some videos and some discussion about that. And I think that'll be interesting. I'd watch that. For sure. <laughs> Maybe that's an idea. Was well, the funny thing is there are there are, are actually a lot of areas where there have been a lot of trademark issues that have come up in, in the beer industry because there's only so many puns available to you based upon the you know five ingredients in beer, and so uh, it is an interesting area. I, I've, I'm fascinated by it, but I like your idea. I'll try to figure out a way to. to Maybe I talk about law while drinking beer. That's Maybe that's the way to do it. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed the hour and a half we spent, and um, I appreciate your time, and I wish you continued success in everything you're doing. Well, it has been a pleasure. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I didn't even realize we've been on that long, so uh, that's a, a sign of a great interviewer. So uh, I appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, continuing to interact going forward. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.